Good afternoon. Hello. I think we should open today's episode with a CGI trailer roundup. So, with a great deal of pomp and circumstance, the new trailer for Cats has arrived. Wow. Now, we've talked before about uh, the, the Cats movie, a number of times, in fact. I think it's fair to say that expectations are riding very high for this one. Yeah, yeah. Anticipation extreme, five out of five. <laughs> Uh, mainly because of the, the the whole concept, the way they're executing it, the the full CG cats, probably the most expensive digital cats that have ever been created. Is it fair to say that this is the most money that's ever been spent on something that's related to the animal cats? Um, Do you think anyone has ever spent more money than this on like something that's cats related, like cat art? Or Lion King, if you would count those as like big cats, you know they used a lot of very expensive CGI for that. Or are you just talking domestic? I'm thinking You're domestic. Run of the mill. Thinking domestic cats, yeah. Cats that could, you know, like cat projects. Pet. I'm saying that, like, maybe it, you know, in in ancient history, like a great king might have uh, done a, a cat, like a, a statue of his cat or something, and spent you know the equivalent of <laughs> billions of, of billions, dollars. you know, building a building a statue for his beloved cat or something like that. That's no, possible, but I think this might be the the work I think this of is art. Number one position. This is the top, yeah, in human history, the the most the most expensive cat art. Uh, so we've seen the second trailer. It's kind of similar to the first, I thought. Yeah, I feel like they've given up a bit. You know, it's like we're not winning anybody new. It's round. the same kind of music, and it's also got a couple of the same lines. James Corden still goes, um, ha 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 ha. Yeah, he does that. Does that thing? The thing that uh, struck me this time because there's more like snippets of dialogue. There's a bit where one person says, "One, one person? What am I talking about? One cat, I should say." There's no, there pe- there no people. people. No people. One cat says, "Cat got your tongue." Yeah, and then later, River Wilson says, "Don't mess with the crazy cat lady." But I know they're making no effort for me to suspend my disbelief. <laughs> <laughs> but why would a cat say, "Cat got your tongue"? Mm. It's like that time we watched Bright, and uh, Will Smith says, "Like he's like a Shrek-looking motherfucker." It's like, why does the movie Shrek exist in a world where there are trolls... real orcs? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's my main complaint. My only complaint, in fact, it should have been like I didn't like. I don't know friend got your tongue yes or like what would take a if cats well actually that that's a bit of a, of a cryptic um turn of phrase anyway yeah i don't know why a cat would get your tongue but like what would get a cat's tongue like a like a dog perhaps <laughs> dog dog at your tongue <laughs> i just think that line suggests a level of scrutiny hasn't been applied to the scripts and the world building you know well the thing that confuses me i we might have talked about this before as well but um the proportions i find very very strange how big are the cats? Because they've made them... They, they're, they're on giant human sets kind of thing. So they're like small by comparison. They're not yeah. the size of people. But they seem in some shots to be much too small. <laughs> too small in like some shots. Really small. And in some shots, much, much too big. Much too big. <laughs> yeah, so there's a shot in the new trailer of some cats dancing down the stairs. But like, you know, a cat, I would say, is like two or three stairs steps long, wouldn't you say? Yeah, Definitely. Whereas these guys are like this, basically they've got one step and they're having to take a gigantic kind of step down just to go from one step to the next. Yeah, it makes no sense. Do you think part of the problem is that like because they are upright, basically they're basically humanoid kind of cat, the human cat hybrid people. Like, so like Meowth from uh, Pokemon. Yeah, exactly. So do you think that, that that makes it difficult because, you know, what size ought they to be? Maybe it would look weird if they were just the length of cats, but upright, if you know what I mean. <laughs> like, maybe they'd look too big. Or, or is it more like... Um, sorry if I'm overanalyzing this. No, but not like, at all. Do you think that, like, they, they've decided that just there is a certain mid-height, which is just weird, you know? 
it's the uncanny valley there's a bit in ant-man and the wasp where ant-man's shrinking thing breaks and he gets stuck at about like one third height <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> and uh, they get some like good humor out of that but i guess it's true that it's weird you have to be really small or you have to be normal size but like if you're like in between maybe that just looks odd what do you think you think maybe that's the rationale well you know i have absolute faith in tom hooper so i'm sure he's thought about it i'm sure they've all thought about it a lot he's an interesting guy right remember when he won best director over like david fincher and stuff like and now he's made cats <laughs> do you think the, the academy are like maybe we didn't quite put our chips on the right guy here to me this is a this looks like a potentially hubristic project you know, you, you could have made this for 1% the budget simply by dressing these people as cats. Nah, nah, mate. <laughs> it's so weird because he made such a fucking deal about the uh, verisimilitude of shooting Les Mis. About yeah. how like, it was all on set and they all sung live. But now he's just like gone the opposite approach. It's like it was all painstakingly created in CGI and they all just lip synced. It, like... it would have been better if, um, if uh, Les Mis was just all cats, like CGI cats. <laughs> yeah. Because it's a bit grim otherwise. It's a bit grim. <laughs> They were just cats. Yeah, I think that would have been better. Oy. So also, uh, in the CGI trailer roundup, they dropped a new trailer for Sonic. So both the original Sonic trailer and the original Cats trailer made the internet go a bit wild. They were like, what is this crazy fever dream? Uh, in the case of Cats, they have stuck to their vision. Not possible to, re- to change direction on that. In the case of Sonic, the um, outcry about how weird fucking Sonic looked, they'd yeah. actually taken a rather similar kind of design philosophy where it was a sort of human-animal hybrid kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Human teeth and human proportions, but also covered in fur, but somewhat bit like a hedgehog kind of thing, like very creepy, bizarre, uh, nightmarish creature. So they've, they've gone much more cartoonish, and he now looks a lot more like, you know, the cartoon character of Sonic. And what, 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 did, what did you make of this? Uh, massive, Any reaction to this? I think it's right? a lot better. A lot less creepy. I actually think they might have like accidentally pulled some kind of genius marketing move because now everyone's talking about the transformation. If you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah I think it's increased the, the like anticipation for this film because it's just the story around the film has been quite a thing. I think it must have been complaints before the trailer break, right? The VFX people must have been like, "Are you like, sure? Are you like, sure? are you absolutely, are you absolutely sure? sure?" And they're like, "Yeah, yeah, well, hundred percent." And then they just crunched. I know it's cynically like, "Okay, we're going to lose money if we pursue this design." So crunch the numbers, blah blah blah, make it more cartoony. Uh, yeah, I mean, I had no interest in seeing it before, no interest now, but it definitely looks better. I watched a um, breakdown from the uh, those guys, the VFX artist reacts guys on the, YouTube, the Corridor Crew. Yeah, so they did a video reacting to the original Sonic trailer and all of the little things that they complained about have been fixed and it does give you the impression that they literally watched their video and did what they wanted, you know? Cool. There's some complaint about like his eyes not being green enough and now they fixed the color of Sonic's eyes and like wow. the lightning being too bright and now they fixed the color of the lightning. <laughs> I think we should be more specific in our complaints about uh, films. Yeah. And then because we're probably a lot of high end like execs listen to this podcast. Well, I think they I think that their channel has about eight million subscribers. And I think we probably have about 10 listeners uh, a month. But I still think. No, I think we we're, we're, we're sort of neck and neck. We're epi- probably neck and neck. Episodes and, and listeners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We need to get one new listener a week and we'll be fine. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, we just need those listeners to be powerful people. Influencers. Influencers. Yeah. Do you reckon Rihanna could listen to our podcast? Do you have any. any I'm sure she could. I'm sure she could. She certainly, she's capable. Yeah. I think maybe we can, she'd reach out to Rihanna. Is she a film fan? Does she like films? She was in uh, Battleship. 
she was in Ocean's 8. She likes being in films. She likes being in films. So she probably likes... Maybe we should do some retrospective she reviews was... of the movies that Rihanna is in and give them glowing, we glowing reviews. We gave a good reviews. review to Valerian in The City of a Thousand Planets. That's actually a great right? point. And we were we were a rare, lone, positive voice on that movie. Yeah, and we weren't thinking about appealing to Rihanna at that time. On on the reels, we did get a few um, RPATS fans listen to the podcast because of... Uh, I think just my review of Charge of the Leader. We got retweeted by like an RPATS fan account with a comment. Oh, they really liked the film. So they did listen they to it. They actually listened review. to it. Yeah. You know, those Twihards, they get a bad rap, but they're good people. You know, they're following uh, these uh, yeah, people's the weird it. careers Absolutely, and, you know, yeah. watching these kind of slightly out there movies. Yeah. Good luck to them. Good luck God to them. Speed to them. I'm sorry that we didn't like The King. Yeah. Sorry about that. Sorry we about liked that. him in it, though. We right? did like him in it. Yeah. We absolutely did like him in it. Anyway, well, why am I here? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All this discussion of Cats and Sonic and Rihanna and RPATS has made me forget why I'm here. What is this podcast? Glad you asked, Danny. Just to remind you and everyone else, this is a, a, a mobster podcast. It's a kind of a gangster film podcast. It's been um, compared a lot to Goodfellas as being somewhat derivative, but I really think it does its own thing. Set in 1960. Uh, it's about a guy called Danny Moran and his childhood friends, Billy McComa and Sam Snipurger. Uh, and they're longshoremen at the Cleveland docks. The members are exploited by a corrupt union boss, Jerry Merck. And the leadership of the ILA union urges Danny Moran to run against him. Snipurger cannot pay a gambling debt to the Cleveland mafia capo, John Nardi. And in return for Snipurger's debt being forgiven, Moran supplies Nardi's crew with goods stolen from the docks. Merck finds out, demands a cut of Moran's profits, and then sends an enforcer to kill him. Instead, Moran beats up the enforcer, then beats up Merck, throws the union leader out of his office, and is later elected union president. He improves the working conditions at the docks while continuing his dealings with Nardi. But then Moran's corruption is exposed by the local Cleveland newspaper, The Plain Dealer, and Cleveland police detective Joe Mandinsky, who grew up with Moran in Collingwood, arrests him. Bankrupt and facing prison... Moran plea bargains to lesser charges in return for becoming an FBI informant and being banned for life from organized labor. Moran is released, moves his unhappy wife and daughters back to Collinwood. Nardi gets him work as an enforcer for a Hungarian Jewish loan shark called Shondor Burns uh, and later helps pitch a deal to Mafia Capo Jack Licavoli. All right, short story long <laughs> because I'm reading too much of the synopsis. Uh, it all goes tits up, right? Everyone's out to get Moran, but he's fucking hard. He's got a big bristly moustache he's got a wig it's pretty convincing uh, and he will stop at nothing to just do just not die he will stop at nothing to live <laughs> it's what i would be saying if this was a adaptation of the uh, iconic unforgettable famous 2011 film kill the irishman starring ray stevenson vincent d'onofrio christopher walken val kilmer and an, an array of uh, famous faces in a film you've not seen um, instead, it's just a podcast in which you talk about and review films. I'm Sam Foster, and joining me, an Irishman who you're trying to kill, Danny Moran. Hey, that's me. So on this episode, we will be reviewing Scorsese's much-anticipated gangster epic, The Irishman. You know, anticipation couldn't be higher. Every time De Niro and Scorsese work together, the results have been a masterpiece. Mean Streets, Taxi Driver, Raging Bull... The King of Comedy, Goodfellas, Shark Tale. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Goodfellas fucking sucks. But is this film, in which they've used state-of-the-art digital technology in a failed attempt to recapture De Niro's youth, just a failed attempt to recapture the success of their youth? Stay tuned to find out. Plus, we'll be setting our faces to stunned 
when discussing the latest news <laughs> around the Star Trek franchise and it was becoming a regular feature we discussed the perils of late stage capitalism and the bizarre film projects they produce such as a recently Netflix announced prequel series of the classic film Chinatown all of which should leave me just enough time to tell you about my latest film project I've had it in development for 12 years but Netflix have finally come through with the money the people I approached 12 years ago are still on board I've got the dream cast it's Kirk Douglas Olivia de Havilland and Norman Lloyd. Unfortunately, the script is a feature film adaptation of the Channel 4 show Skins, and all the characters are teenagers. Uh, 12 years ago, I think we could have got away with it, but like Kirk's now 112, Olivia's 103, Norman is 105, but I've been on the phone to the WizKids at ILM, and they assure me with the right plugins, they can remove 85 to 90 years of aging, and uh, it should be, should be fine. Oh man, these people are these seriously people are old. old. And with today's technology, they, they can never stop working. They must be eating a lot of the uh, queen bee goo or whatever. That's you know, they're, they're taking some uh, fucked up stuff in order to, to to prolong their lifespans. <laughs> anyway, you, but your film sounds excellent. Thanks, man. It's called The Welshman. It's based <laughs> on um, Sketch, that woman who dates Maxie and uh, <laughs> and uh, and uh, what's his name, Dad Patel's character. Callum Russell, good friend Callum Russell, has got in touch with us to recommend a video to us. Uh, it is a deep fake round table, Tom Cruise, Danny Jr., George Lucas, and more, all sitting around, played by um, Impressionists, and they've used uh, today's sophisticated deep fake technology to make them you know, look like the famous people they're doing an impression of. I'm Mark Ellis, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Tom Cruise. <laughs> Honored and privileged to be here, Mark. Uh, next to him is... <laughs> Good to see you, uh, as always. Jeff Goldblum. Uh, uh, to his left is Robert Downey Jr. Hi, I'm Robert Downey Jr. And to his left is George Lucas. Well, I apologize. Uh, earlier I had a burrito, and I've, I think I've got the uh, Kessel runs. Danny, you've seen this video? Yeah. What, was it creepy? Was it funny? Were you terrified about the, po the possibilities for what it's going to do to society? Yeah, I was, you know, it's fitting that Jeff Goldblum was one of the people because I was like before you know you thought you should do it you just did it what's that line of dressing <laughs> no I think you got it before <laughs> you thought you should do yeah, it you, you just, just did you it just did you, it. Just, <laughs> you didn't think you didn't should think, I do it no you just did you it you just did it yeah yeah but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could they didn't stop to think if they should um, I was terrified. No, it is very good. I was mainly just impressed by some of the impressions, particularly Robert Downey Jr. because he's not somebody people do an impression of necessarily. He hasn't really got like a hook. Like Jeff Goldblum, I feel you just sort of like move your hands and be a bit sort of uh, creepy. Uh, uh, yeah, he just needs, he he's made, he does make that noise a lot now. Yeah. Sort of uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, 
but Robbie Downey Jr. is a bit more harder. I've never seen like someone do it on SNL or something, you mm. know. But yeah, very impressive with today's technology. But there's an interesting thing there because like the the deep fake thing is not quite. The, it's not the same type of thing as like the de aging technology. I mean, maybe maybe yeah, they no. are using the same. I don't know AI or whatever. Like the deep fake is more like it's like an algorithm. It's like machine learning, and you plug loads and loads of photos in, and you just cr- you just you let yeah, it sort yeah. of go, and then you put it on a map over somebody's face, and it just does the work for you in a way. And one thing that is kind of interesting about it is that it like this is more like some kind of uh, basement hacker technology that basically anyone can do if they have like a decent CPU and they let it run for long enough. Whereas what they did to De Niro and the Irishman is obviously like some absolutely state of the art like professional visual effects that you know these yeah, the yeah. teams of people work on for months and months and months. Um, but the deepfake stuff is incredibly good, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Uh, and like it's not perfect, but it's really really good. And the uh, the de aging stuff, I guess it's a different kind of effect. But maybe it's not that different because you Can could kind of like plug enough... in millions of <laughs> yeah. pictures of young De Niro. So, um, but it's just interesting because that that's not totally convincing either. And it's like I w- I'm sure this is some this is a you know speaking of the corridor crew that were this is the sort of thing that they would do is like what if you took the Irishman and instead of you just replaced the de-aged young De Niro with simply a deep faked young yeah, De Niro yeah. <laughs> using this like, AI technology and like how much worse is it? You know? Yeah. It's just funny the way that like. Yeah, you know, some basically what is eventually an app, you know, yeah, yeah. is is sort of going toe to toe now with like the top studios. But they're but like people love doing this. Obviously, it's 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 faddish. People are super into it. I think I'm. I don't really mind it so much as a toy. And I, but maybe this is yeah, the sort yeah. of thing you'll live to regret when like there is a genuine actual scandal. And I know that like they've uh, there's been sort of deep fake like porn and that kind of thing, which is yeah, obviously yeah. totally unethical. But yeah, we haven't had anything like terribly severe. I mean, I'm sure the conservatives are going to use it in their uh, election campaign in order to have like, you know, Corbyn saying something scandalous. But Well, you know, the son cut out that veteran from that picture. So it looked like Corbyn was dancing to the cenotaph. Like, he, like, <laughs> he was mid-stroll with a, like, a World War II veteran. I feel the next logical step is just to like fully mask his face onto someone like murdering a child. <laughs> you know? Yeah, they would probably do, and then they would distance themselves from it, but the damage would have been done. You know, it's a plot point in uh, the Russell T Davies show Years and Years. Really, like a deep fake used to sort of like harm someone's political reputation, and then the evil Emma Thompson says like, "Oh, it might be fake, but you know, I did see it. It did look real." And just, you know, and then she becomes prime minister, and then it all goes to shit. So it's all it's all fucking fun and games now, Sam, but. Yeah, don't don't come crying to me when the when you when you fucking when Emma Thompson liquidated, <laughs> <laughs> destroying us. Yeah, yeah. So as much I found it very entertaining, but I think it might uh, spell the start of a dystopia. So. But I feel like a lot of that's a lot of contemporary life has this vaguely apocalyptic tinge to it. <laughs> you know, like I find that I'm I'm looking at my phone too much, and I'm like, you know, is this just a sign that everything in modern life is corrupted and awful, and I'm living in the Blade Runner, you know, style dystopian world already? I feel like everything, every time some new thing comes out, it's like some weirdly uh, compulsive thing that you can't just enjoy without like <laughs> having the vague sense that it's destroying your life or destroying the planet in some way. So in, in, my, in my view, deep fake is no different. It's just, you know, it's all got that. It's all, it's all, it all, shit, it's all it? feels a bit apocalyptic. So, But but thanks for sending it away, Callum. Thanks for, thanks for sending Thank it. Thank you. Thank you for sending it in. I hope, I hope that was a stimulating discussion we had about that there. I think we really got into. I think we really got into. Yeah, we, we really got into. Really got into. Oh yeah, we really, we got, really into got under the hood there. Yeah. All right. More on faces that look different because of computers later. 
Superhero films announced, casting rumors leaking out. M. Night Shyamalan's film is hated, Paul Thomas Anderson's is fated, Meryl Streep's Oscar tipped, Matt Damon's in a viral vid, Michael Bay's made a mint, that's the news that's fit to print. So we've discussed before the stop-start of the Star Trek franchise. The third movie was a few years ago now. And then there was going to be a fourth film, which was going to have a time travel element involving Chris Hemsworth, but they couldn't uh, secure the deals and it all fell apart. And then Quentin Tarantino just had an idea for a Star Trek movie and pitched that. So they started developing a script based on his idea. And the latest bit of news is that Noah Hawley, who is probably best known for his TV work, he was the showrunner on uh, the Fargo TV show and also Legion and recently had a massive critical and commercial failure with his debut film, Lucy in the Sky, a sort of Natalie Portman drama about an astronaut who returns to Earth. Uh, but he's a white dude in Hollywood, and he cannot fail. So he obviously, after a massive bomb like that, you immediately get signed to a huge franchise. So he is apparently going to write and direct Star Trek Four with the returning uh, cast of, is it the Kelvin timeline? The Chris Pine, Zachary Quinto, J.J. Abrams reboot thing, which is 10 years ago now. And uh, Chris Hemsworth may or may not feature. We don't know. It depends how many, you know, truckloads of cash they bring to his house. He's like, you know, I'm a Thor. Do I have to do this anymore? You know, <laughs> <laughs> Or maybe the fact that Men in Black International Bond, he's like, you know, ah, oh, Jesus, I need to get on another franchise. He probably said something like that. I'm sure he did say something almost like that. So what do you think? Noah Hawley directing Star Trek 4. How excited are you for Star Trek 4? Already. Regardless of anybody involved. <laughs> what, what's... This is a uh, a real uh, a blur and meh franchise for me. I think I think um, you know it's a, it's, there's a combination of I don't have that much attachment to the, the original television show, so I'm not especially outraged by whatever they you know they might be doing to it. I'm not like, how dare you have Bones say that? It's not what he would say or whatever. Like I don't Bones would never say that. Bones would never say that. Uh, I don't have that kind of sensation watching the movies. Um, I think as a franchise, it's kind of been fine. I, you know, I mean. Yeah. I, Star Trek Beyond was a perfectly uh, kind of okay film that I thought <laughs> did, you know, I was like, yeah, I watched this. It, it, it was beginning and to the end. It was, I wasn't angry or I didn't, you know. I wasn't incensed. <laughs> I didn't start to get that knot in the pit of my stomach. Like <laughs> The things Bones said seemed like something Bones would say. I was say. like, Bones would probably talk, he'd say that. That's just a classic Bones line. I'm sure he would do and say those things. So uh, I feel totally and sincerely and passionately neutral about about this prospect. Noah Hawley, and it is an interesting guy. I mean, I haven't seen his Lucy in the Sky movie, uh, but I've heard only excellent things about Fargo TV series, and I really enjoyed what I watched of Legion. So, you know, he's obviously got experience from Legion of doing fantastical and exciting things and crazy special effects and all that kinds of stuff. So, you know, maybe he's got the... The, the neurons are firing in an exciting way and he's thinking about the stuff you can do in space and he's like, wow, I can do exciting things in space. Yeah, the thing that makes me think he might be a good fit for the material is that the TV show and sort of the movie, but it's a bit different. Like the J.J. The Abrams reboot version is a bit more like a sort of sitcom version of the original show where like they've dialed up uh, Kirk to be like a super hothead and like maverick where it's in the show he's much more measured and just like takes the advice of his crew members but I think what's like nice about the show and maybe there's a connection to Fargo is that like all the heroes are kind of like morally uncomplicated people they just like do the right thing always they're weirdly unflawed in that way and uh yeah the other thing that's interesting about it is that when Star Trek the 2009 reboot like the blockbuster climate was completely different 
and now we're living in a post Disney world where they got the Star Wars franchise and the Guardians of the Galaxy franchise and like an irreverent space voyage show movie was a relatively fresh prospect, you know, even though it's a reboot of a 50-year-old TV show in 2009. But now there's all these bloody crews running around in space. So where, what direction would you take it in? I mean, if his movie hadn't bombed, I'd be like, oh, cool, Noah Hawley, yeah, why not? But uh, apparently it was a total uh, critical and commercial disaster. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, it happens to the best of us. Happens to, hey, you know, everyone can fail. Everyone, like everyone can everyone succeed. Everyone can fail. So you should judge people by their successes, not their failures. Yeah. That's um, something that you would probably, that's like one of the messages you'd probably get in Star Trek. Something, you know, fucking wise like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I would I would imagine that um, it would just be another sort of like colorful and, uh, un, you know, uh, not, not, not a difficult thing to watch, just a sort of slice of uh, space adventure. I mean, that's basically what Star Trek Beyond yeah. was. It was a bit like a course correction after Star Trek Into Darkness was sort of, uh, I don't know, it wasn't really that dark, but I guess it was it was a bit more like serious drama because they were kind of doing Wrath of Khan and, you know, it was a bit grim face and poke face and they were like, no, this is this is going to be back to the quips and, you know, yeah, fun yeah. or whatever. Um, and I, I assume that it will be something uh, very similar like that because it, it's a bit like a, he's got a bit of a blank, blank slate, right? Like, it's just, you, you know, the characters that's just like, from yeah, the background cultural just... world of Star Trek and they make another one and... Yeah, it reminds me of the sort of news that Ben Wheatley's doing, Tomb Raider 2. It's like, it doesn't have to, like, what boxes have to tick you know it's like you're in space you've got a crew something happens a problem arises it will be resolved yeah i guess know. i guess when when jj abrams was originally rebooting star trek then it felt like you know how will he take the this thing which is so beloved and uh, he's remaking it and doing it again and what's his fresh take and now it's like the fourth film in this rebooted franchise <laughs> and it's like all right just bring out another one it's the next episode you know yeah, yeah. just it's got to be colorful it's got to make me not want to go to the toilet or forget that I need to, you know, then it will have done its job. And what more can a film hope for? What more can a film hope for? You not take a shit while watching it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 that's, the, that's the blockbuster ambition. A man can dream. Make people clench. Spock, isn't it enough the Commodore is famous for his hospitality? I, for one, could use a good non-reconstituted meal. Doctor, <laughs> you are a sensualist. You bet your pointed ears I am. Well, we live in a world that demands content. It's basically, you know, culture is a, is a big uh, ravenous beast and it, it needs to be fed. <laughs> uh, and there's just not enough ideas to go around. So this is going to be one of the new threads, I think, that I've constantly returned to and, and, and expound upon. It's just like something we were talking about last time, like uh, projects which seem like well executed, but just have no reason to exist. Yeah. Like huge amounts of culture fits that bill. Uh, and probably the easiest way to make something which people will watch despite having absolutely no reason to exist is to do sequels and prequels and reboots and that kind of thing. So a lot sure. of, there's a lot of that going around. I know, and it always has been, to be fair. It's not a new phenomenon. Uh, but it feels newer to do this to things which you just, it's just like, really did that... Did that really? It's like someone's. Really? It's like someone's reading the Wikipedia page for things that have won Oscars or whatever. And um, we're about like one year away from a sort of Pulp Fiction uh, uh, sequel. Yeah. Uh, you know. You know. You know. Like, um, there was this project that was knocking around where Tarantino wanted to make a film that was called like The Vega Brothers, and it was like 
John Travolta's character from Pulp Fiction, who's like canonically the brother of Michael Madsen's character from Reservoir Dogs, and he wanted to make some kind of movie about today's technology, Sam. (laughs) That's exactly what I was thinking with today's technology. If Tarantino died tomorrow, his tenth film is going to be his like this. This hideous fuck- cash <laughs> on like previous former glories why like, not it would honestly fit like culturally it would fit perfectly if he actually did that but anyway anyway so this is the latest project that, that, that has come come out of the factory and is going to act like a big serious piece of art but it's come in the most cynical and, and meaningless way and it is a prequel to the film chinatown classic movie uh, starring jack nicholson they did already make a sequel to it in 1990 called the two jakes uh, and now the writer of chinatown robert town uh, all legendary of his, screenwriter all of his films are town they've all got town in the title because he's yeah. that's his surname just a, just a ri- town he a, wrote that <laughs> he wrote that he's a real narcissist yeah, that summer's way. town that shane meadows film it's, <laughs> seen, it's seen improvised but it was actually written it's by, written by robert town and the acclaimed director david fincher it says he's going to be overseeing it i guess maybe he will direct it like david fincher already worked on the reboot of house of cars that they did as well as this uh, crime television series mindhunter which he directed a few episodes of so Fincher is going to be an executive producer and we know very little else about it other than this. It says here that the new series will see Jack Gidders, the, the detective played by Jack Nicholson in Chinatown, handling cases as a younger man. <laughs> <laughs> He's younger. No, no shit. <laughs> so, so I guess it's a prequel, so he probably would be younger. Yeah. So the first question I've got to ask is, will they cast Jack Nicholson and will they use the de-aging technology well, to make him young? He, I looked this up. He was 37 when Chinatown came out. Yeah. He's now 82. Yeah. <laughs> He's got to go younger than... Got to go younger. Maybe like some 30, mid, early 30s kind of thing. But he made like loads of movies of Roger Corman. who really churned out a bunch of like schlocky movies in the 60s. There's probably a lot of good photos lying around. Feed that into the algorithm. Mm. Bam. Young Nicholson on a huge, slightly, you know, bloated, heavy set old man's body. Yeah, with an eighty-two-year-old man's body. Just you just got to. He's a good actor. Can't he just act like he's in his thirties? Yeah, just fucking act. This is very similar to the. I think we discussed it. Like, there's going to be like a Nurse Ratchet prequel series, or maybe oh, yeah, or even yeah. like um, Pennyworth is now streaming on Stars. As like uh, my TV keeps reminding me, is like you can't just make uh, a show about like a, a, a spy. Is like, and the spy be uh, Butler? Batman's uh, Bat- Butler. Batman's Butler. It's like making a show a detective. Can he be the detective from Chinatown? <laughs> Could he drink Pepsi? <laughs> you know, it's got that kind of vibe to it. But he's not even like iconic a character. The Faye Dunaway is the sort of heart of that movie. And like the ending was really famous. Yeah. But I think you'd struggle to describe J.J. Giddes other than he's a private detective. He's a hardball private detective. Yeah. yeah, let's see the John Houston prequel. Do you reckon every episode will end with like, forget it, it's like Korea town. Like, forget it, it's London town. Oh, I like this. Forget it, it's Little Italy. Let's forget it. <laughs> <laughs> I like that he just goes to different districts that like ethnic districts forget it it's Hell's Kitchen <laughs> forget it this is the biggest uh, uh, expat Somali population uh, <laughs> in the country <laughs> um, how can it be good like it's such a complete story I don't think film noir's work is serialized television because what makes them impactful are their endings you mm-hmm. know the best film noirs have like really like amazing endings which are usually like really bleak but if you do that every week, you know, every episode before it's like 15 <laughs> seconds later, the new one streams. You know what I mean? Like you can't do the mood. I don't mean that can sustain itself for more than like a two hour runtime. I think that's true. And they will say like that sort of dense plotting as well. Like yeah. you can't have that over 13 episodes. It's just going to become completely incomprehensible. I feel like you, you probably could do like a, you know, like a case of the week type yeah. type thing. And that, you know, 
it could be uh like it could be fun you know maybe maybe they go for that but it, yeah it's gonna be the kind of thing where it's like why is this a prequel are they gonna be kind of like nods. full of little nods and references to <laughs> what's like going a, to happen a like, like john houston is going around and like just buying a uh water uh, just buying an orchard <laughs> <laughs> no big deal no big deal do you ever like read these news stories and think that it must be really really easy to be a producer yeah yeah whatever like can you just read like wikipedia or just you just sit down and watch tv and there's an old movie on and you're like i need a prequel to this prequel prequel sequel maybe that's the that's the hard thing that's that one takes skill is it's like is this need a prequel or a sequel no he's like sequel and it's like there was a sequel it's like okay prequel, okay, prequel. <laughs> remake <laughs> Those are the three. Those are the yeah, three yeah. main choices. Yeah. Na- name is... a name a name an Oscar-winning film from the seventies, like a film that won an Oscar in the seventies. Uh, Rocky. <laughs> I've already. <laughs> That's made. no good. That's a huge franchise. What about like the Deer Hunter or the something? Deer Hunter. Yeah. All right. Prequel, sequel, or remake. Which which would you do? Um, I guess sequel. Set 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 in a in in the first Gulf War. Yeah, I'm trying to think which war is the closest, or which one would you know. Um. Yeah, or prequel, but like make it like really far back, like so, the Boer War or something. The Boer War. <laughs> <laughs> well, like it's their it's their ancestors, it's their like yeah, yeah. great grandparents or something. Yeah, it's like history repeating itself through time. Yeah, that's kind of history. Does history do be like that? <laughs> history do be like that, man. <laughs> history just want to be. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll jot down a few ideas and send this to Netflix. Yeah. Shakespeare in Love sequel. Send this to Rihanna when we're also sending her our, our podcast. Yeah. Good plan. Solid. Solid like plan. You're right. Good. Yeah. Right. You're right. Good. Right. Right. Cool. Sam and Danny both watched a film and they decided to record a few opinions on the things they saw. You're going to hear them in a moment or so. There could be angry disagreements, but their views are normally quite close. A joint review shared between two podcast brothers. Do they let one another speak or do they interrupt each other? The is on. The guys are in, so let the chat Event film time now. Martin Scorsese, one of our top living directors, unfortunately has destroyed his own reputation recently by uh, complaining about Marvel movies, thus proving himself to be a fraud who's never made a good film in his life. Um, but uh, nevertheless, he's produced a new movie, The Irishman. It's just come out controversially perhaps um it's only getting a limited cinema release but it's, and it's mainly coming out on netflix it's part netflix funded uh it's an adaptation of a book called i heard you paint houses which is a investigation into the death of the american union uh, leader jimmy hoffa um who who disappeared in uh, mysterious circumstances and his body was never found but he was just sort of declared dead much later on and the book posits that he was killed by a monster called uh, frank sheeran also known as the irishman and this is a, a sprawling uh long epic film that takes place over like 60 years or something like that 60 years yeah. <laughs> uh which is framed by robert de niro who plays the irishman as an older man in a uh, sort of nursing home and he's looking back over his life and kind of recanting it and it, recounting it and it goes from him being very young uh, all the way through through the sort of Hoffa years and so on and Scorsese has re-amassed the full cast of everyone who's ever been in one of his gangster films plus Al Pacino who he's not directed previously uh, De Niro, Pesci, uh, Bobby Cannavale, Stephen Van Zandt like they're all they're all here. Harvey Keitel. Harvey Keitel, Stephen Graham uh yeah everyone in this film is famous and they are all gangsters 
here is a clip of Robert De Niro's character, Frank Sheeran, speaking to Jimmy Hoffa for the first time. Hello? Is that Frank? Yes. Hiya, Frank. This is Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah, yeah. Glad to meet you. Well, glad to meet you, too, even if it's over the phone. I heard you paint houses. Yes, yes, sir, I, I do. I do, and I, uh, I also do my own carpentry. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. I understand you're a brother of mine. Yes, sir. Local 107, since 1947. Yeah. You know, uh, our friend speaks very highly of you. Well, thank you. He's not an easy man to please. Well, I do my best. When did Al Pacino start becoming sort of southern? I feel like his accent's become like quite southern of late. Do you think so? I well, like in the 70s, it's all high and all like that. Yeah. And then he gets a bit hoo-ha. Hoo-ha. And now he's like, that's the hero in the fold. It's like, I do declare. It's a little bit, you know. Maybe, yeah. I mean, that's not something that, that I had thought of, but that could well be the case. Um, so this film is three and a half hours long. It's an epically long film. I guess you're covering 60 years. So in a way, it's very short by comparison <laughs> to, <laughs> uh, to the amount of time. Thank God it was a one-to-one ratio. Yeah. And, be watching it. and we, we both saw this in the cinema, which I think yes. is probably the way to go, not just because it's a big film, big cinema release. It's Scorsese, whatever, it's real cinema. Uh, but also, like, I would find it very hard to sit down and just watch my laptop for three and a half hours and yeah. really pay attention. I think I would, you know, find myself checking my phone and whatnot. And if you're forced in a cinema to really absorb it, I think that's probably the way to go. I uh, I enjoyed the movie, but I, I have some misgivings about it. And I find, you know, I think it's an odd, it's kind of an odd film in some ways. I would say that, like, before we really get into it, what what I was worried about going in was that it would be this sort of attempt to recapture past glories. And it's, I think I think it was the association with it being a Netflix release. That yeah. it, it made me think that there's something very Netflixy about the project where it's like, what if we get Scorsese to make a, a, a gangster movie with Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci, and Al Pacino? Everyone's going to love it, and we'll give him all the budget he wants, and it can be seven million hours long, and that's, <laughs> that's, it doesn't matter because it just fits our content machine yeah, or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, was a little, I was a little concerned that it would be like that. And I would say that having seen it it does not feel like a project made to a netflix specification it definitely feels like a proper scorsese movie but at the same time some of the aspects of the type of film that i was worried about do kind of fit it yeah so yeah what were your thoughts on it no i I think we're kind of broadly on the same page it's definitely like the opening is like a sort of long tracking shot maybe like a deliberate nod to the goodfellas tracking shot to like the sort of doo-wop soundtrack and i was a bit like okay here we go yeah yeah that doo-wop music as well i think is a bit overdone yeah and there's definitely a big part of the element is a bit sort of like a Scorsese doing Scorsese karaoke. I think the thing that I found most um, not disappointing, but like something that's a bit of a problem with the movie is that these actors, these kind of Scorsese all-star players, uh, all the supporting characters are people who were in Bulwark Empire or in his short-lived TV show Vinyl. But they're all just doing like versions of characters they've done before. Like I've Stephen Graham's an amazing actor and he like The Virtues is probably some of the best screen acting this year. But I've seen him play, like, he played Al Capone for five seasons and he was like Babyface Nelson in uh, Public Enemies. And I'm just like, you know, I've just seen him do the hothead gangster thing so many times that it's just a bit dull by this point. And the standout in the cast, I think, was Joe Pesci, precisely because he isn't playing a Joe Pesci Scorsese character. It's not like uh, Tommy from Goodfellas or his character who's so similar, I've forgotten his name, from Casino. He's like this sort of dulled down uh you know slow to anger dude he's very calm and measured and i think that he was the standout for that reason 
Pacino and De Niro, I think they're there. It's kind of good casting. It's playing to their strengths or weaknesses, depending on how generous you're feeling. Because uh, like Jimmy Hoffa is this kind of like blowhard guy prone to speechifying, and it kind of suits that Al Pacino. His the older Al Pacino. He's persona. in he's in full hua mode. I personally found it like quite bad, like a bit interminable. <laughs> like, and I know like De Niro is like almost doing the, the absolute opposite. But there's something like the, the first like scene with Pacino is him like giving a speech. He's like, oh yeah, okay, well you gotta get a truck, and it's just like <laughs> you've just you're a parody of a man by this point. And De Niro is like, I guess it's good casting because Frank Sheeran is this sort of emotionally barren sociopath who doesn't really emote. And so that suits the sort of De Niro thing of like his acting, non-acting that he's been doing for a while. But then I think in the final act of the movie, it kind of came into its own because that's the bit that's the freshest. It, it forms a treasure, I guess, with Goodfellas and Casino and Pesci, De Niro, gangster ethics. And both Goodfellas and Casino, the, the final act is like a day in the life. Like after like skipping through time so merrily, like Goodfellas is the day he gets busted. It's like the whole like thinks the helicopter is following him. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Casino has a very similar structure where it's like all about what the events of a day. And then uh, so does this movie. But then it goes beyond it. And I don't know if like the final act is like really, really good or it's just so it's different in the context of the movie. You know what I mean? Like, is the end really good or is it just better than the preceding three hours it took to get there? Well, the end sort of feels like the point of the film. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I'm just wondering, like, was it worth the journey? I think the thing, the thing for me, like, I don't know. I didn't think De Niro is very good in this film. And I think that his weaknesses as a kind of late, the late period actor were really exacerbated by the decision to make him play himself young. And that part of why the final stretch of the film, when he is at his oldest, works the best is because I do I feel like De Niro in his current stage of life in movies does have a bit of this slightly defeated air to him, no matter what he's doing. And I don't feel... I mean, I kind of... I enjoyed Al Pacino in the movie more than you, but I think that's partly because I felt like Al Pacino was kind of in the moment and was, you know, doing, yeah, yeah. You know having a very energetic performance and I kind of... I, I found I found him quite entertaining. I thought he was really throwing himself into it, and I do feel a bit like De Niro just does not have the fire in his belly anymore. You know, <laughs> he just doesn't have it. And he's like, as a as a younger man, he's such an intense actor, and he's such a compelling screen presence. Yeah, like yeah, one of those guys who just draws your attention. He's just on the screen. He's not doing anything. You know, I mean that that weird, like uneasy quality to him is is what powers movies like uh, King of Comedy or Taxi Driver, where it's like, what the fuck is this guy going to do, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't feel that he has that at all. He's like this comfortable, you know, rich guy who's occasionally called upon to return to the cinema. And as a sort of sad old man, I feel like that makes perfect sense. But yeah. then having literally the same guy play the fired up youngster <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> whatever yeah, yeah. it's supposed to be just seemed like kind of odd so uh, like that the the really elegiac and melancholic quality of the final stretch of the movie didn't have as big of a contrast as maybe it could have with the more traditional gangster mode yeah of the first part because it did it did feel a bit like here's your gangster movie but here's what it's really all about you know like by the end it's like you've enjoyed all the gangster fun but actually you know was maybe being gangsters bad I don't know something like that. Yeah, <laughs> not to like, give the game away, but like, yeah, it just I just felt like it did not it did not fully land because of that, and it, and it it's partly a technical issue because there there's one particularly odd scene where um young De Niro goes and uh, wrecks this uh, grocer shop in a, yeah, in, yeah. A, in a 
one of many sequences which is drawing on a whole line of gangster moments you know yeah yeah like there's millions there's tons of scenes like this in the sopranos in which uh he hears that there's been a slight against a family member and he goes and uh messes up the dude who did it but he's like he's got you know this old man body old man walk and young man face and it's like what this is weird (laughs) yeah 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 it just looks really odd i would say it's just not necessary because large because it's so long a large part of the movie because it's like you know 60 years a lot of the movie is the sort of second half of that where it's like late 50s to 80s when he can just kind of basically play himself basically play yeah. himself and i don't think the movie would lose anything and probably would gain a lot more if it was just a different actor playing him in those younger periods like i mean he famously played the young uh don corleone in godfather part two yeah. you know like <laughs> yeah and that was a, that was fine. an amazing job yeah of like sort of mirroring uh What's that actor called? Marlon Brando? Uh, you know, his performance and sort of reverse engineering his performance from that. But what I was wondering is like, if you had never seen Goodfellas or Casino or in the movies it inspired, so if you hadn't seen a movie for like 30 years and you watched this, would it have the same? Is the tone deliberate or is it that we've just seen this movie before? So it's got this sort of tie quality be- just because we've seen Goodfellas. Or is it like, how much of it is design and how much of it is just the slight meta nature of watching it? You're just watching season six of the Scorsese De Niro gangster show. And a good comparison, uh, my other friend, Sam, who I met at London Film Festival made, is that like, it reminded me of like season six of The Sopranos where like the, the party's whirring down, the existentialism is dialing up, the exuberance is dialing down. Yeah. But that that is itself a bit of a cliche. Well, that's the that's the thing. So that's my other misgiving about it is that like although the way that it's told, you know, feels sort of refreshing, like head on, I guess that message about um, crime doesn't pay, which is essentially what it boils down to, is very familiar from gangster movies. You know, you party a lot and you get all the girls and you you're young and you're having a great time, but then reality catches up with you and it was, doesn't turn out to have been worth it to be a criminal, or whatever. You know, and I like. I feel like that's a million. Like, it's basically the message of all gangster films. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like that. It's real like hangover, like the sort of Hague Code or something. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, yeah, you've got to have a moral lesson. Like, you can show your yeah, cool Jim, gangster Jimmy doing Cagney whatever. Has to be like wheeled in and like thrown on the family's floor at the end. You can't just like die in a cool hail of bullets. They added on the ending because you can't just you know die in a cool way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. It'd be great if he just wasn't bothered at all. He's like lived a great life. I've murdered many people, and it, I've you know what if a duck's back. i'm also a little unsure about the extent to which films like this kind of take on their quality of epicness or grandeur just by sheer force of time you know yeah yeah yeah. like it just feels like a slightly inelegant way to tell that kind of story to be like well it's three and a half fucking hours long and he's a million years old at the end and he's really young at the beginning so this has been epic like and the the movie that it reminded me of was uh synecdoche new york the similar kind of like meditation on mortality and stuff with a lot of like relentlessly pursuing one relentlessly idea. <laughs> pursuing the sort of like misery of oldness you know like yeah, yeah. synecdoche new york has this real quality of like man aging and being human is fucking shit and like you know you, you're in, left in no doubt at the end that uh great works are acts of hubris and <laughs> you, you cannot stave off becoming a sad old person and you know yeah, yeah. and that's because the movie is insanely long so you, you've lived a lifetime and then you've grown up with the character almost literally and the movie you know he's really old and sad at the end and i don't know like i don't know if it's really profound or whether it's simply 
you just ex- made such an extendedly long thing that it feels yeah, like well, it this is. is the thing like by the end it's just like you just you in the context of the film itself yeah so like you know i feel like robert de niro's performance is really good at the end it was like is it just better than the previous three hours <laughs> <laughs> is the film like really good in this final chapter or is it just better than the previous yeah you know but yeah i don't know because like yeah it's just going outside the length there's a lot of like shoe lever in it with like all the dialogue is like you do the thing you know the thing no the other thing the thing from the guy no the other guy. everyone's like always talking around it yeah. it's like it's almost like uh, i don't know how long the script was to begin with but like everyone was improv every line wherever like joe pesci there's one bit where he says some line about like some hats or something he's like yeah make sure the hats are over there or something he's like can't people just like say their line and then leave you know they have to like do a bit of shtick well, there's a lot of that. There's like stuff which is basically Simpsons mobster dialogue, which is like, uh, you know, oh, it's like Fat Fat Tony, but not that Fat Tony, the other Fat Tony, and like, <laughs> greetings, Homer. Hey, Fat Tony, you still with the mafia? Uh, uh yes, uh, I am. Thank you for asking. Now, Homer, as you no doubt recall, you were done a favor by our, uh, how shall I say, mafia crime syndicate. Yeah, so like, I, there were some bits where I was like, "Is this just a cli- Is this just like a cliche? Like, yeah, is it a comment on it, or, or is this just corny and stuff that's been done? You know, I don't know. Like a lot of the individual bits is very, very familiar beats. So yeah. I'm a bit unsure about. I, I, I don't know. Maybe we'll maybe we'll re- revisit this later and we can decide whether it's really good or whether it's just a bit hack. But it's perhaps also missing like a sort of female perspective. Like, yeah, Goodfellas had Lorraine Bracco and like Sharon well, this Stone does have Casino, and it has, this has the conscience Anna, of the film kind of. And Anna Paquin, who has like six lines, she's like the most interesting thing about the movie. She's got a lot of presence. I don't know if like that's the point. Is that it's like a sort of life not lived, and it's it's just a sort of, um, a dramatization of the kind of void which is his life. Yeah, but I felt like there were moments the movie is kind of coasting on the Scorsese-ness and then occasionally gets interesting and then like kind of ebbs and flows and then sort of like kind of sticks to landing, I would say. Yeah. Better than I thought it would be, would be my general. I think, uh, yeah, I think, I think that's true. I think that there, there's, ba- there's practically no women in the film and the ones that are in it don't <laughs> yeah. make much of an impact. And like, yeah, Anna Paquin is good in it with, as like, you know, a relatively small, but also quite crucial role as to what the film is trying to do. But it is also still just like, it's a role that only exists to reflect on the main character. It's yeah. not like her inner life is particularly important to the movie. And although a lot of what we said has been a bit critical about the film, it does say something as to the film's quality that I wasn't really bored and it's super, super duper long. And I watched the whole movie and it was, you know, it, there's something interesting going on throughout. And I was yeah. always interested to see kind of where it was going to go. There's like things happening in every scene. And even though like a lot of the both events and dialogue in the film skirt the edge of cliche it i was not rolling my eyes you know i yeah, was kind yeah. of i kind of bought into it and you kind of look back on afterwards and you're like well that was a bit silly maybe but at the time i was i was i was bought into it. and i think maybe that's just like scorsese is such a, a very very accomplished filmmaker and you know you're in the hands of someone who really knows what they're doing and it's just you know it's class it's classily made so yeah, yeah. you're just happy to watch it so I, I would not recommend it add it to your watch list or see it in the cinema do whatever the fuck you do want. Whatever you want to do, do whatever you want. My favorite film stars Bridget Bardo. She's the queen, but she wants to be in radio. So she starts a podcast with her friends, and the terrorists try to stop her, but she beats them in the end. Sam, got a question for you. Uh huh. His dull materials. Are you finding Lord Boreal too sexy? <laughs> Lord Boreal. Yeah. 
Uh, I am finding him too sexy. I agree. I agree with that criticism of uh, the television program. Yeah, yeah, too sexy. He is very cool and sexy, and I don't know why he's in it a lot as well. Yeah, but I am a, I am an episode behind on his dark materials. To be fair, so I don't know what I don't know how sexy he is. is that like is there a scene where he's in a sauna or like? Uh, no, it's just like he's just got a lot of does presence he, does and he charisma. Shower? Yeah, and in the book he was in my head he was like a sort of like creepy old pedo catholic priest type mm. and they've uh well one of the good thing about the adaptation is they've like increased the diversity which is not apparent in, you know you know the book is super white yeah but it's like you've cast a super sexy charismatic black dude as like the creepy villain and now i'm totally rooting for him he's even got a snake it's so freudian he's like <laughs> you know what i mean he's just so fucking sexy that um i'm quite yeah i'm kill lyra whatever i don't care just fucking kill her. <laughs> just do it do whatever yeah yeah it's an odd it's a slightly odd adaptation the his dark materials thing i think it looks it looks really good kind of looks the part i would say uh and it's um certainly feels more like the book than the movie did um but i think they're they're fleshing out the world in order to kind of stretch it out into a tv series in a way that um part of it feels good like i like the fact that they're doing a bit more with like the egyptians Mm. Um, because one of the odd things about the Northern Lights, the book, is that there's this like child kidnapping plot, which you feel like would be the main engine of the story, but kind of does not feel quite like it is. Like, yeah. Uh, and so the fact that they're doing a bit more around the lives of the people who've been, you know, affected by that makes sense, and it kind of introduces like a class element as well that feels like more present in the TV show than I remember it being in the book. Maybe it's just because I was a kid when I read it and it kind of you went past me. Child. Um, but also they're doing a lot of extra exposition and stuff around dust and other worlds and all this kinds of thing, which I feel is both against the kind of pers- like perspective of the book, which is all about like a child who's in an adult world and there's adults talking about things that she doesn't understand. Whereas this, we have this more like Olympian perspective yeah. where you know they're kind of talking to us and we're supposed to understand everything they're talking about. And also robs the story of some of its revelations and that the, the, the dust lecture um, right at the beginning of, of the story it's like an intriguingly bizarre and incomprehensible moment where he's like he's got a skull he's got like slideshow with lights in it it's like what the fuck is this guy talking about and it kind of it's one of the things that's cool about fantasy worlds that they have secrets from you and you are sort of um there's things that are teased yeah like that will be revealed later whereas this is more like this is another world and then like in later on the same episode someone visits another world so it's a bit like yeah. showing its cards you know that's a really cool revelation but you know and lord boreal's too sexy and lord boreal's too sexy he's too fucking sexy i want to fucking want to whenever he pops up uh and it's distracting it's 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 just distracting as christian bell uh once said it's distracting <laughs> yes i'm not though on that note, thanks for listening to the 201st episode of Film Chat. We're going to be here. We're in the we're in the 200s now. Yeah. Uh, you know, next right. week we'll be reviewing Knives Out. I've already seen it. I want a sneak peek of my review. It's yeah. Very very good. Very yeah. very very enjoyable. Loved it. All right. Well, I better see it then. I haven't seen it. And I'm also going to review The Nightingale. It's the new movie from Jennifer Kent, director of The Babadook, the gay icon The Babadook. Mm-hmm. Is he? Do you know what I hear about this? The Babadook got like uh, <laughs> listed uh, on under LGBT uh, on Netflix by mistake. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't hear about so, that. Like, really? People searching for like LGBT like movies, the Babadook came up, <laughs> and then they, they were just embraced by the LGBT community. So like uh, like gay pride and stuff. People, people just dressed up like Babadook. That's and then, amazing. Like, Jeremy was like, yeah, sure, whatever. So he's he's become a gay icon. Okay. All right. Well, she's probably pushing to have that happen again. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So we'll we'll be looking at those two. And uh, until then, 
you know, have a great week. Vote, vote Labour. Vote Labour, get out there, get on the doorsteps, campaign. We've got this fucking brilliant manifesto. Got a great manifesto. Check check that out. You gotta yeah, we gotta we gotta do it. We well, we will do it. We, we got can to, win. we must do it and we, we will, will do it. We can, we must, we will. It's a foregone conclusion, but don't rest on your laurels. <laughs> you gotta get out there. <laughs> it's inevitable. It's inevitable. But, but you've but gotta do you're it. You're personally responsible for it, so <laughs> Yeah. Alright. Alright. Bye. Bye bye. How much are you worth? I have no idea. How much do you want? I just want to know what you're worth. Over 10 million? Oh my, yes. Why are you doing it? How much better can you eat? What can you buy that you can't already afford? The future, Mr. Gitz. The future.